Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week we're going to the moon. My first guest is Metropolitan Museum of Art curator Mia Feynman. Her new show is Apollo's Muse, The Moon in the Age of Photography. The show surveys how artists have looked at and considered the moon from the dawn of photography and several hundred years before to the present. It's on view at the Met through September 22nd. The marvelous exhibition catalog was published by the Met and is distributed by Yale University Press. It's $42 on Amazon. On the second segment, Barbara Bosworth. But first, Mia Feynman, after the break. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln presents Unquiet Harmony, the Subject of Displacement, featuring works by painter Carlos Alfonso, multimedia artist Tiffany Chung, and the artistic collective Superflex. This exhibition focuses on personal, environmental, and economic factors that prompt migration. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The de Young Museum is using modern and contemporary art to recontextualize historic works from its collection in Specters of Disruption, on view now. Unfolding among several galleries throughout the museum, Specters of Disruption draws out patterns of disruption related to the museum's colonial and geological background and connects them to current conditions in the Bay Area and the evolving dialogues within American art histories. Explore disruption as manifested within nature, history, myth, culture, and technology Inspectors of Disruption, on view now at the DeYoung Museum until November 10th. Visit deyoungmuseum.org for details. Experience theater under the stars at the Getty Villa this September. This year's outdoor production is The Heel, a bold new version of Sophocles' timeless tale directed by Aaron Posner and co-produced by Maryland's Roundhouse Theater. Posner creates an irreverent, spiritual, musical exploration about the wounds we carry, the ones we cause, and the redeeming power of human connection. Performances begin September 5th and run through September 28th. Learn more and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. And we're back. Mia Feynman, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. It's good to be here. Since the early 17th century, at least, the show starts in 1610, Scientists and printmakers and photographers have been drawn to the moon for reasons ranging from, as the show demonstrates, from the scientific to the fantastical. That 1610 work I mentioned is a Galileo engraving of the moon. So when photographers become interested a couple centuries later on, do you think they were engaging an already 200-some-odd-year interest in images of the moon, or was it more simple? Was it just it was there and it was beyond? I think they were part of this effort to map the moon that began in the 17th century and uh, was very active in the 19th century. So it was really photography of the moon was a continuation of these of these earlier efforts of, you know, just pointing a camera through a telescope was uh, a way of creating an image that was not mediated by the hand of the person who was drawing the map. And that was very important as a scientific image. Yeah, let's broaden out from there just for a moment to put that in context. The first eight or 10 objects in the show are are, uh, engravings or drawings. So there was already for several centuries, people were looking through telescopes and to the best of their abilities, reproducing what they saw. Yes, that was... The telescope really 
began this this project, which was an international project to explore the moon visually, to map it, to name its features, uh, and it was called Selenography after Selene, the Greek ancient Greek goddess of the moon. And that really it began with Galileo, you know, who published the first drawings of the lunar surface as, as seen through a telescope. So firsts are notoriously difficult to pin down, but to the extent that maybe one can be, I suppose it's inevitable that Louis Daguerre would have at least been the first to have tried to use photography to capture the moon. Was he? How'd he do? <laughs> Uh, yes, he did. He did capture a sort of a blurry image of the moon, and although you, you couldn't really see much detail, we know from uh, descriptions of it, it was still pretty exciting for scientists at the time. Unfortunately, uh, that daguerreotype uh, was lost, so we don't, you know, we've never seen it. The next earliest one that that we know of was by John Draper, who was a physician and chemistry professor at New York University. And this picture is in your show. That is in the show. And that is an amazingly good image for the time. It's very small. The actual object is very small, uh, but you can see pretty detailed uh, craters and the topography of the lunar surface. It's a little under four inches by three inches. And it is in what, what strikes me as an unusual place, which is the NYU archives. It's hard to imagine how, uh, you know, with modern eyes anyway, how Draper's image was or might have been useful to science. Was it a pathway or a, a promise of what was to come or was it in and of itself fulfilling? In and of itself, it was more more of a novelty than, than a useful map. It showed that a camera could capture an image of the moon, but it, I don't think it provided scientists with any information that they didn't have already from hand-drawn maps. So one gets a sense from the Draper forward that, you know, even without reading the catalog, one gets a sense that artists and photographers are furiously experimenting with how to make pictures of the moon. It's apparent from the show that quite often it's more complicated than simply looking up. What are some of the ways that photographers are using to, to capture the thing? The major technical challenge for 19th century photographers and capturing an image of the moon is the fact that the moon and the earth are both in constant motion and exposure times were very long. Draper's exposure was 30 minutes. And during that time, the moon is moving across the night sky. So you need to have something, some device or even just a person to be slowly moving the telescope and camera in sync with the moon so you don't get a blur. And that was, uh, that was a challenge that really was uh, uh, solved in a few decades by creating clock drives for telescopes that actually would, were able to move them in sync with the moon. And it's just kind of one step at a time in terms of these you know, technological advances that allowed the images to get sharper and sharper. Maybe the most famous 19th century photographer of the moon is Warren Delarue. Who was he and what was, what was his goal, his aim? Delarue was an amateur astronomer who was based in Liverpool, which was uh, an important center for uh, astronomy in the 19th century. 
and he designed his own telescope and used uh, wet collodion glass negatives to photograph the moon and actually designed a working clock drive to to move to capture the moon as it moved across the night sky and really was made you know a huge leap forward in terms of the detail and clarity of the photographs and he's he's making everything from from standalone prints to stereographs to you know everything else when he's making a, a stereograph of the moon we think of stereographs as being you know penny entertainment is are, are they functioning that way for a popular culture or do they have another purpose it's both. I mean, by, by this point, the stereograph was a way of distributing these images beyond the you know, small photographic and scientific circles. So it was definitely a kind of mass distribution of lunar images to the general public. But stereographs of the moon also do play an important role in understanding the topography. Geologists on Earth also use stereographs because you get a, a perception of depth. And so you can actually see you know, how, how high uh, hills are and how deep valleys are uh, from looking at an image in three dimensions. The story gets both dramatic and weird as we as we get to topography of the moon. But just before we do, there's a point maybe in the early to mid 1860s, uh, at least in the U.S., where uh, science and photography and maybe what might one might almost call modern image making come together. And in your show, that moment may be best represented by a picture by Lewis Morris Rutherford who was uh, an aristocrat born to a, a family involved in the founding of the Republic, and a picture of his from, from 1865. What does that picture show, and what does it kind of begin to pull together? Well, Rutherford was making these large-scale images. This is one of the largest images of the moon itself, a sing, you know, single image of the moon in the exhibition. And, you know, and it's, it's a beautiful, rich albumin print. And Rutherford was creating these images as science, but also as a kind of art, a kind of photograph to be to be appreciated, hung on the wall and, you know, and looked at for not only its scientific value, but its aesthetic beauty. Yeah, that Rutherford is 28 inches tall, which is by the standards of 1865 photography more than mammoth. And also, you know, you mentioned the topography of the moon, you know, in that Rutherford, you can really, I mean, more than in the works that come before that are in the show, you can really see that in the Rutherford. You can see layman's term ahead, ridges. Yes, it, you know, it, it, was, it was helpful. But the, the thing is that even at that point, you couldn't get a close-up of the moon. I mean, that was something that you, couldn't, that you could not do photographically. You know, although Rutherford was making these amazing images, at the same time, there was also a space for, for hand-drawn illustration that never really went away. Photography didn't take over the entire function of hand-drawn maps because, uh, because of its inability to show close-ups. However, one an amateur astronomer from Scotland, James Naismith, managed to get around this in an interesting way. These are some of the you know, most fascinating, you know, bizarre to uh, modernize uh, images in the show. So Naismith, Naismith's father was a landscape painter. And in order to understand the topography of the landscapes, the earth, earthly landscapes that he was painting, he would often create plaster models of, you know, rocks and, and ridges that he would then, you know, light and use to, to paint from. Um, and so Naismith adopted this technique for photography. So he would observe the moon through the telescope 
make detailed drawings and then translate his drawings into three-dimensional models so that you could actually see you know how high the crater was or how or how deep how deep it was and then he would photo light uh, these pho and photograph the models and he, he used them as illustrations in his book that was entirely uh, devoted to the moon uh, called the moon considered as a planet a world and a satellite and that was published in 1874 and was very popular there's a great picture in in the catalog which is just an enormously entertaining uh, and smart read i mean a couple times I, I i i just stopped and laughed and said they thought that or they enjoyed that or what a fantastical thing that is um, but there's this picture that naismith made in 18 58 outside his home that the kind of is the narrative of his practice of his practice if you will what does that picture show uh yeah well it shows a telescope that he used the refracting telescope along with uh, a couple of these lunar crater models that are just you know sort of <laughs> sitting there next to it unfortunately i don't think these these actual plaster models don't survive anymore but you know it looks it it, it looks like he's faking something and you know it, in a way you know, from from a modern perspective, he is. But actually, to 19th century scientists um, and geologists, this was a valid way of, of illustrating what was going on, what he was seeing. Um, uh, you know, we think of science as being only about objectivity, but sometimes you need to compensate for the limitations of the technology that you're using. So that's that's what Naismith was doing. He was compensating for the fact that he couldn't photograph a close-up of the moon, but he could photograph a model of a close-up. We've been talking about science, but science isn't the only way in which artists and makers approach the moon. There was a broader 19th century cultural moment of fascination with the moon. How and why did the moon become such kind of a pop culture thing? Well, in the study of the moon, the art and science are always interconnected. You know, as in the Naismith example, um, and every time there was a scientific advance in terms of uh, making the moon visible, uh, there was a, a corresponding artistic uh, rise in artistic interest in the moon and and in the moon of the imagination and trying wondering, you know, what you know what's really there? What is it like on the moon? What what does it look like up close? Are there moon creatures? Is there a hidden landscape? Are there caves underground? What's on the far side of the moon? Um, all of these questions uh, were stimulated by the scientific investigation and observation of the moon. Um, and so, you know, it was interesting in putting the show together to really see, you know, how how intertwined these different ways of looking and thinking are. So we're going to get out of timeline a little bit here, which is okay, because I wanted to raise a couple of the sensational, <laughs> fantastical engagements with the moon that are in the show. What was a trip to the moon uh, at the 1901 Pan American Expo in New York? It was sort of like a carnival ride. In a way, it was the predecessor of Space Mountain at Disney. Um, <laughs> I mean, it really was. It was, a, it was a, a, a ride. I think at the time it was called a phantasmagoria. It was, you would get into this big spaceship that was kind of like a literal ship. And about, I think about 30 people could get in at a, at the, at a time. And then when the ride started, the spaceship would begin to move and shake. And there were uh, painted canvas backdrops that would be moving around with, with lights on them and to simulate the a blast off 
from the Earth. And so the Earth would seem to get further and further away and smaller and smaller. And then you burst up into this, the heavens and there are stars around and you see planets. And then ahead of you, you see the moon. Um, and then, boom, the spaceship lands on the moon and a bunch of uh, little people dressed as moon creatures come and open the doors and lead the, the people out of the spaceship um, and through these caverns and caves that are that seem to be made of plaster or paper mache and bring them to the throne of the emperor of the moon and then they exit through the gift shop where they <laughs> they can buy souvenirs and sample and sample green cheese. And um, it was an incredibly popular attraction. Who wouldn't who wouldn't want to do that, right? I mean So the show includes both a photograph of somebody, correct me if I'm wrong, walking out of this fantasticness? Uh, yeah, it shows uh, we've got a couple of uh, sort of documentary photographs, you know, of this attraction in, in Buffalo. So it was it was so popular. This is actually yeah, the picture in the book actually shows the actors uh, dressed up as as the moon creatures uh, standing in one of the caves. Uh, part of the reason why they thought it was caves is because, you know, you, when you look through a telescope, you don't actually see people on the moon. So people, you know, science fiction, early science fiction authors, see, you know, sort of speculated that there might be life in the moon that we can't see because they're underground. It's a fascinating history. So anyway, after this, this thing was this attraction was so popular in Buffalo that uh, when it when the fair closed, they reopened it in Coney Island, and it became the centerpiece of Luna Park, which is still there today. You know, even even as science and popular entertainment is is fascinated by the moon, artists come in 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 all kinds of of different ways. There is a Caspar David Friedrich painting in in the show, and indeed in the Met's collection, in which Friedrich shows a couple of people looking up at the moon. There's always a religious, you know, a, a, a temptation to read faith into Friedrich. What is what is he pointing to here? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of art historians have speculated that that it's uh, that what he's talking about or showing is is religious contemplation. There have been other interpretations of the painting as a having to do with uh, German nationalism. But in a larger sense, you know, for the German romantics, uh, the moon was really a symbol of, of longing, of melancholy longing. It's always out of reach. Uh, it's something that, you know, it's, it's, it's beauty. It's the other. It's, you know, it's something that you desire but can never attain. So from Friedrich forward, we, we have artists of all sorts who aren't necessarily science first, who are interested in using the moon and moonlight for for their own purposes. There's a terrific 1904 Edward Steichen in the show, for example. How did Steichen approach the moon and and engage all kinds of art histories with it? Well, from the very beginning of his career as an artist, uh, Steichen was fascinated by moonlight and twilight, these these in-between states that were really coming coming out of Romanticism. He was also uh, interested in, you know, camera technology and, in, you know, and trying trying to capture things that were difficult to capture. Um, and so he made, you know, some of the earliest successful photographs by moonlight. Like his, uh, he made a series of uh, photographs of Baudin's sculpture of Balzac in 1908. But uh, the pond moonrise is 
uh, an image of the woods, and you know that that's also another very uh, important subject for Steichen. And and you know it's the moon, you know just just peeking over the horizon in the wood the in the woods with a pond in the foreground, and it's beautifully printed and toned with these uh, with colors. So it's almost something that sits in between photography and painting. You know, to be honest, I'm not really sure if Steichen was photographing by moonlight that night or if it was a sunset, because that was a common, another common way of of uh, creating moonlit views, especially in the 19th century and turn of, and, the, and the, the turn of the century when it was difficult to photograph by moonlight uh, because there's just wasn't enough light to to get a good exposure. Photographers would often take a daytime view and then print it dark and tone it with with you know blue pigment to create a moonlit uh, an illusion of of a moonlit view. Steichen's view is very Emersonian with that reflection you mentioned. It might also be considered as his his moonification, haha, of John Kensett's Twilight in the Cedars at Darien, Connecticut, or or any of the paintings like it, in which Kensett shows, uh, in this case, the sunset, the light of the sunset pushing through the lower registers of the cedars and kind of imbuing the forest with inevitably a transcendental glow. So it's kind of doing a whole bunch of things at once. There's also uh, a, a man ray in, in the show, which kind of points to a, I don't know, maybe, I mean, do you think it kind of shows a change in how artists are using the moon, kind of a, a different avant-garde embrace, maybe? Uh, yeah, it was part of this portfolio commissioned by uh, a French electric company. So he is using the, the technique of the rayogram, uh, which is really was at the time an avant-garde technique of placing photo, uh, objects onto photographic paper and exposing them to light to kind of create a shadow image. And in this case, it's an image of the moon that he found, I'm not sure where, uh, along with a light switch, sort of making making a, a comment about the moon as the lantern of the night sky being replaced by electricity. So as we get into the middle of, of the 20th century, it becomes possible as a part of the great American-Soviet rivalry to, to go to the moon, or to at least try to go to the moon. In September of 1959, which was two years before Kennedy dedicated America to going to the moon, the Soviet Union started trying to get to the moon. One of their vehicles was called the Luna 3 probe. Why is it significant in the context of your show? The, so the Soviet Union was uh, had very good engineers, uh, and they were the first to do a lot of things uh, in terms of the space age. And one of the firsts that the Soviets managed was to send an orbiter, a spacecraft, to orbit around the moon, and the spacecraft was equipped with cameras that photographed the far side of the moon when it was there. And then when it came back around, it beamed those images back to Earth, which was then received and, and distributed as the very first photograph of the far side of the moon. One of the things that I, I mean, I guess we all know that we, it, we all know that we only see one, one side of the moon, but it's something that I've just sort of forgotten about until I started working on this show. The moon and the Earth are tidally locked, which means that the moon rotates at the same speed that it orbits around the Earth, so that we only ever get to see one side of it. 
So the other side is the ultimate mystery. You know, it's something, it's again, it's, it's like the moon itself. You know, it's close, it's there, and yet we can't see it. And so this photograph was, was a really historic moment because it's, it showed us something that human eyes have never seen before. The photograph itself is pretty blurry. To me, it, it reminded me when I first saw it of, of a fetal sonogram, you know, which I thought was kind of appropriate, uh, you know, as the first glimpse of something, you know, for our entire species to see this thing for the first time. As, as technology progressed, we got clearer and clearer images of the far side. And in just this past January, China landed a spacecraft on the far side for the first time and sent back some close-up views. So the Soviet image is fascinating for all kinds of reasons, political, historical, and otherwise. TASS, the, the Soviet news agency, the Soviet propaganda agency, released just one picture of uh, however many Luna 3 may have uh, made. And a print of that picture ended up in the Mets collection three years ago via a couple who collects photography and is a major donor to a number of museums, and they live in San Diego. And it's... Uh, a gelatin silver print. So how does an image that TASS released once um, as the only picture end up as something that is an object that can be collected uh, or gifted by Americans? Well, the image was distributed via wire services. UPI? Yeah, UPI. You know, there were many uh, prints that were the different news agencies had and used uh, to, for publication. And then eventually when these news archives uh, in, the, in the digital age, uh, a lot of uh, news agencies sold off their physical prints because everything had been scanned. Um, and so those, those prints then were you know, auctioned off or sold through dealers, ended up being purchased by either photography collectors or people who are interested in a particular subject matter. And that way, made their way to museum collections. Now we, you know, as photography is a fascinating place to work and, uh, you know, field to work in in a museum because it encompasses not only art, but also science and documentation and, you know, vernacular uses. Uh, so there, there are many, there is, there, we have a lot of photographs that were never created as art in the first place here in the collection of an art museum. Yeah, it's a fast. The reason I brought it up is because it's a fascinating object history, especially now when uh, Russia is not loaning to American institutions that a Soviet object can can still exist, be collected and exhibited. Yeah, actually, Soviet. Uh, it was it was pretty difficult to find Soviet material for this exhibition. I, I felt like it was real. I thought it was very important to show both sides of the space race you know, really beat the bushes to, to find uh, some original photographs, uh, you know, from the Soviet Union during this period, you know, because most most American exhibitions and books about the space age tend to focus on NASA photographs, which are, which are much more easily available. So um, I was glad that we were able to find a few things. I was going to bring that up next. You, you point out in the book that you make kind of a broader uh, historio-political point here, that TASS, because of the intricacies um, and foci of the Soviet system, you know, they released one picture. That was it. They were good. They were out. Whereas NASA's strategy was entirely different. And, and NASA just made piles of images available. And, and those images have, you know, exist in many ways in many formats today. 
which is a long way of saying there's a bunch of NASA stuff in your show from uh, from the 60s. How did you come to choose the NASA stuff you chose? Because uh, you could have had any one of thousands of things. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, NASA, <laughs> NASA material out there. I mean, there are frequent auctions of you know, space age material, you know, especially this year. So we wanted to represent all three of the uh, robotic missions that NASA sent in order to uh, investigate the lunar surface in, in anticipation of a manned moon landing. That was, uh, we wanted to have a good photograph from the Ranger program. Um, and we also actually ended up including another three-dimensional uh, relief of, you know, that shows, well, this is actually not in the book. Anyway, we should have a photograph of the rank from the Ranger program and a three-dimensional relief based on it. Then we have a photograph from the Surveyor program, which was the next one, and then a number of works from the Ranger program, which had the most sophisticated uh, photographic imaging system of all the programs. There are a couple of pictures that seem like a, a smart curatorial choice to pick up the topography thread that had been there earlier in the show, wherein uh, there are close-ups of craters of the moon that show their, their variants, if you will. There's a limit to how much detail you can get of the lunar surface from a telescope on Earth, mostly because the Earth's atmosphere just gets in the way and doesn't, just, there are limits on what you can do, even with a powerful telescope. So after the 19th century, really the next phase of lunar imaging and lunar explora visual exploration came in, in the 1960s with the space age. And so it does pick up that thread again, you know, in terms of that scientific imaging of the moon. Um, and, you know, these images are also, you know, incredibly beautiful, you know, were looked at, were distributed and reproduced in the, in the American press at the time. Uh, we also included a few select photographs by astronauts taken in space uh, using uh, Hasselblad cameras that were specially customized for them to use with their space gloves on. Um, and these are also some of the most famous photographs of the 20th century. Those pictures got me thinking about how confident NASA was or wasn't that a Hasselblad would work out and up there. I mean, there was there, there's an anecdote in, I think, Tom Hanks's foreword for the book where he writes about how on one of his orbits of Earth, because NASA wasn't sure if food could be eaten in zero gravity, that John Glenn swallowed a pill just to prove it could be done. <laughs> so, so was there concern about whether a camera would work in that environment? They they didn't know they didn't know until they tried but they did know they did know that that they had sent up the unmanned missions with cameras um, so they you know they did know that cameras would work in space that you know the pilots I mean the astronauts who were pilots you know had been using cameras to you know to photograph you know at the windows of their planes you know for years before they even you know entered a spacecraft so you know it was it was important. It was important mostly, you know, to the astronauts that they bring along a camera. The, en the NASA engineers uh, were really more interested in, you know, the, the science aspects of these, uh, of these missions, uh, you, know, you know, getting to the moon, doing experiments, collecting soil samples, documenting the places that they collected. There was a point where the engineers were saying, well, you know, what do we need color film for? You know, we're, we're, this is for documentation. And it was really pressure from the public relations department at NASA to that, that allowed the astronauts to take the color film 
in the first place um, and that allowed them to make these extraordinary images. So the show continues into into the present. Contemporary artists are interested in the moon, too. And so there are a couple of works that, that we'll pick up and talk about. Um, one is um, an object that reminds me of kind of the fantastical pop culture stuff we were we were talking about a moment ago, and and its address. <laughs> so, uh, what is that, and and you know what is on the dress? Well, it's a rocket that is um, it, the dress is from 1968, designed by a British graphic designer, Harry Gordon, and it shows it has a screen printed view of a Mercury Atlas Eight rocket blasting off the dress. It, it, which is part of the Met's uh, Costume Institute collection, was uh, one of a series of disposable poster dresses that Gordon designed featuring popular imagery screen printed onto paper. So the dress is actually made of paper. Uh, this was a kind of a fad in the 60s, paper fashion. It was made to be worn a few times. You needed to stay away from open flames uh, if you're wearing it. <laughs> and then after... After you were done with it, and if you if you got tired of it, um, and this this dress is you know sort of the beginning of uh, disposable fashion in a way, it sold it was only three dollars at the time, and you could you could either you know toss it away or you could cut it at the seams and hang it up on your wall as a poster. Um, and so it's just a it's a great it's a great pop culture object that really you know kind of demonstrates how thoroughly space age imagery how, had permeated the culture. You know, we couldn't include everything. You know, there are so many, many different manifestations of this in the 60s and 70s. So, you know, we had to contain it somehow. I feel like and I feel like this dress is, is a really great example of that. Another uh, of the contemporary works in the show is Alexandra Mir's First Woman on the Moon from 1999, kind of a feminist raised eyebrow at much. What, what does it show and what in the moon story does it reference? Alexandra Muir is really one of the most famous works about the moon landing, um, although I don't think she was even alive when the moon landing happened. <laughs> but she, um, uh, in 1999, went to a beach in the Netherlands and created a performance event where she hired a bunch of bulldozers to, to actually construct a lunar landscape on the beach. Um, and this was sort of extensively covered by the media as it was happening. And then you know, when she had these, this lunar landscape created, then she and some uh, collaborators climbed up onto a crater, planted an American flag, and, and she declared herself the first woman on the moon. You know, and then, and then everyone else who was on the beach kind of got, got a chance to run up on top of the crater and declare themselves the first whatever identity on the moon. And it was a, it's a humorous way of calling attention to the fact that the only, there, there have only been 12 people who have been to the moon, and all 12 of them were uh, white, straight, male, American men. The image opposite the uh, mirror in the catalog is a Judy Dater that does some of the same work uh, in, a, in, a, in an interesting, pointed way. So the last contemporary work to bring up is a super appropriate one. It's Penelope Umbrico's Everyone's Moon. One of the things I think that the show gets across and the book gets across really well is that as long as humans have been taking and making pictures, they've been looking up at the moon. How does Umbrico's work kind of tie that story together. Umbrico's very interested in the, the circulation of images on the internet in the digital age. And so this, this work, which is called Everyone's Moon, is a screen grab of all of the images 
uh, on Flickr that were tagged full moon on a certain day in November uh, 2015. That, and that was about a million images uh, made by uh, professionals and amateurs and, you know, really anyone who, uh, you know, could, you know, get access to a telescope, point their camera through it, take a picture of the moon and upload it to, to Flickr. So it's a it's a quickly scrolling, almost seizure inducing video of uh, of full moons taken by many people all around the world. And, you know, they're all so similar that, you know, you wonder, you know, why, why you know, why does every this every single individual, you know, wants wants their own image of the moon. You know, it's there over all of us. Everyone on earth can see it. And yet people are still drawn to to make to make their own image, to, you know, to to commemorate that the moment of of individual observation and contemplation um, and I think that's the piece is really about this desire that animates the whole exhibition which is you know this this urge for human beings to to photograph the moon to make image of images of it to to commemorate their own experience of looking up into the night sky and seeing this satellite there hovering over us and it also points to how different everything else in the show is, to how for 150, 200 years, whatever it is, I'm bad at math, photographers showed us many, many, many different moons. And then we get to the Umbrico, and it's many, many, many similar moons. Mia Feynman, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston continues its annual summer series of immersive exhibitions. William Forsyth, Choreographic Objects, transforms the galleries into a series of performance spaces welcoming visitors of all ages. From a monumental environment of shifting pendulums to a single object held in the hand, Forsyth's work blurs the lines between performance, sculpture, video, and installation, connecting participants to the organizing principles of choreography. Now on view, visit mfah.org Forsyth for more. And we're back. Barbara Bosworth, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Let's start with a picture of yours that's in uh, the show in Houston. So much of your work, which makes the natural world and its hugeness, its largeness personal, is is in this picture. Where did it come from? How did it happen? Well, that's a photograph of my father's hands. And it was on Christmas, and it was a day um, when the whole family gathers, where my parents were living at the time, which was Florida, and there was to be an eclipse. Um, of course, I made the family delay our usual morning, Christmas morning things to do this photograph or to attempt to make some photograph. And I did was out there trying this and that. And then at one point, basically out of film, just using an 8 by 10 camera, this one sheet left, and my father just did that with his hands, a gesture of you know just holding his hands out and let the eclipse sort of reflect on his hands. So I just said, whoa, dad, hold still, that's the picture. So then I made that picture. But I think also, to me, what's remarkable about that is he only, the vest he's wearing, the buttons run down the front of him like an eclipse, and that he only wears that vest on Christmas Day. So it just was something very serendipitous about that image. But to me, it's, it's you know, your father presenting the universe to you, right? So... He's holding the universe in his hands. There's something about that for me and my father. But I also just, I love photographing about eclipses or astronomical things. 
So an eclipse is always on my list of to do. If there's an eclipse coming up, I try to make sure I can try and photograph that. So it was a combination of being with family and also the eclipse. And then that happened. The buttons are such a kind of historical reference. You know, if one goes back to like mid-19th century photographs of eclipses, whether it's the Langenheims or, or Humphrey or whomever, you often get the phases of the eclipse sometimes presented in a vertical line just as buttons on on, on a vest. It's it's making the past present. <laughs> well, and I love those Langenheim images. Yeah, they're beautiful. You have made a lot of work uh, looking upward at the moon, at at the night sky, and you've talked about how you've had to overcome light pollution to make those pictures. You know, if we think of landscape as being man-impacted nature, and you've made lots of landscape work that we'll talk about in a minute, is the intent of some of your, or is part of the intent of, of your pictures of the night sky at some level, making apparent how man is also impacting our, our view upward? Oh, I, I don't think I can say that that was an intention of mine. It certainly made me highly aware of the, of the increased light pollution because I've started, started been making these images of the, the clock drive images of the stars. I've been making those for several decades now, and I can definitely see the difference on how much light pollution there is now. So I can't say it was an intention of mine to set out to do. My intention was really purely more just the love of looking at these things and wanting to record that on my film. I certainly became aware of it, and it certainly is a big issue. And I belong to this small amateur astronomy group, and they're very active trying to get bylaw, town bylaws passed that will deal with light pollution and encourage people, encourage towns to make to reduce stray light that heads up instead of why not point all the light down, right? And not upwards. So, and, and I, I would say it's a big problem for astronomers, obviously, actually, that are trying to really see deeper and deeper into the heavens than I, than I try to. And um, I'm certainly aware of it. That reminds me that when I'm in Marfa, Texas, in, in Donald Judd world, one of my favorite things to do is to go up to the McDonald Observatory run by the University of Texas about an hour from Marfa, which is in one of the two darkest at night in the United States, in the continental United States. And the difference is, I mean, you can almost read by, by, by the nightlight. <laughs> yes, I know. I've been up to some observatories that used to be the largest ones in the country, but now there's so many, you know, now they're up there in space, so much bigger than whatever we have on land. Or they have the multiple array telescopes that cover huge territory. But yes, it's always great fun to go to the older telescopes up on, the, on these dark skies dark sky spaces and just look out at the skies. It's pretty incredible. And, and I'm here in Wyoming right now with an amazing dark sky. Last year, you published a book with Radius called The Heavens, which, like a lot of your work, is an engagement with centuries-old human fascinations, fascinations made new through your work. One of the pasts you engage with in the book is the work of Caroline Herschel, or Carolyn Herschel. Who was she? How did you find her? And why were you interested in her? So, well, Caroline Herschel it was an English uh, astronomer in the 1700s, considered by many to be the, really the first oh, professional astronomer. She received a salary from the king for the work she did. Granted, it was a mere pittance compared to what her brother, William Herschel, was getting from the king, who was a royal astronomer. But anyway, Caroline was the sister to William Herschel, and the aunt of John Herschel, who we all know as part of the history of photography. 
I, I guess I became interested in her because she was a woman and would spend hours at night staring through a telescope at the stars. And that's what I would do with my camera, just sort of stand out there for hours in the middle of the night looking at the stars or trying to record them on my film. So I guess that's where I had this affinity for Caroline. And you were able to capture comets that she specifically had identified. No, I didn't photograph any comets. Although she was, the astronomy at that time was big about discovering these comets. So she did discover, I won't remember how many off the top of my head, but she discovered in her own right, right? Not as her brother's assistant, which is generally what she was considered. But in her own right, she discovered many comets. Oh, I know what you're thinking, Tyler. No, what I was interested in doing, she also discovered lots of the nebula, and there were these fuzzies in the sky at that point, right? Remember, their telescopes are not what they are today. So they would be seeing these fuzzy objects up there, but they didn't know what they were. And William Herschel was an amazing optician, or that's not the right word. He, he just made amazing glass for his telescope. So he could see more than anybody else could see. And Caroline could take advantage of that, right? Because he made her some amazing telescopes too. So she's looking up there at the sky and discovering these fuzzy objects and sort of for the first time seeing them before anybody else is seeing them. So she discovered in her own right several of these and it was those that I got interested in sort of recording on film and looking at. But it also led me to the glass plate archive at Harvard has this an amazing collection of glass plate negatives from all their telescopes that they've had for the last 150 years all around the world. So it led me to looking at their glass and find parts of the sky that Caroline Herschel had also recorded. So anyway, I love looking at those glass plate negatives and just the idea of the archive of these things fascinates me. So I wanted to think about doing something with those images. So I think that's what you're thinking about. You mentioned uh, having to hook up your huge 8x10 camera to a clock drive to make uh, some mini of the of the heavens pictures. Of course, that's a practical necessity if you want to uh, make pictures of stars as we see them, as, as, as dots, as specks of light in the sky, instead of as lines or streams. But it's certainly not as, I don't know, handsy or personal or intimate, at least to me, as, as other ways of working. And I was wondering if that mattered to you. Oh, interesting. I'm not sure I, I think of it as not being as personal intimate because I'm actually there <laughs> with this equipment and with this for quite a long period of time. And it gets quite, I get quite attached to this gear while I'm making the picture. But I think I see probably what you're saying is because it's gear heavy, right? It also, it also does this thing where to, to, to put the 8x10 on a clock drive you know, it's it's at what could only be described as a kind of inhuman angle. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, and I suppose yeah, that's probably true. But once I figure out once I figured out the gear part of it, then it was just kind of just me and my camera, if that makes sense. Once you figure out the technical part of it, then it's just me and making a picture. And I just love being out under the night sky, and I wanted photographs that showed all those all those stars not just one or two that you would get by making a you know one second exposure so or you know longer exposures i get the streaks but so i just love being out under that the nights i just love being out there so i think just having the camera next to me is just sort of part of what i do anyway and the fact that it was on a clock drive i kind of lost track of that to a certain point on the other hand yes 
Yes, it's very difficult dealing with the clock drive. You have to watch a guide star for the whole hour exposure because if it drifts off that guide star, then you've got a comma instead of a dot. And anyway, and plus, I don't think, I think 8x10 is, I don't know why I was so obsessed with getting it on 8x10. It's just that that is my camera. And I just thought that if I could make this work on an 8x10 camera, then the prints would just be exquisite. My hope was that they would be that. So anyway, so I was compelled to do an 8x10. Today, you know, you can take a digital camera out there and yeah, it's like, yeah, <laughs> a whole different world. Your work for many years now has looked at man-impacted nature, landscape in the early 19th century definition. What started your interest in, in man-impacted nature? Was it New England's history, something else? Yeah, well, yeah, no, probably a bit of New England history, but I think more it was, because I had spent a lot of time outdoors and hiking and being in these places, and I was realizing my earlier pictures were much more formal and no people or something in them. So I kind of wanted to address the fact that I'm in these places. So, you know, isn't that important? Didn't that matter that I was also in these places? So I started photographing about that. So I guess I just like the way we were part of nature. So that could range from just, you know, walking along a trail, a national scenic trail, to that that relationship of humans and nature and where food comes from, right? That that sense of that kind of deep connection to landscape that I think is much different than going for a hike. You know, it's really a, a deeper knowledge of the place. And, and again, I didn't spend time with trophy hunters. It was people who um, also used the animal for food. I was interested in that kind of all sorts of human inter human and nature interaction, whether it be birds. I worked with a group of bird banders because I wanted to do it with eight by 10 and how do you photograph a bird with an eight by 10. So I, I, and I love birds, so I knew about bird banders, and I started working with this group that would let me take a picture of them before they released the birds. So I have this series of portraits of people holding these birds, which I, which I quite like. So, I, yeah, I guess it just, just happened by my own experience, I guess, is how I wanted to show, make pictures that sort of related to things that I was interested in and that I spent my time doing. It seemed like the camera followed, right? I sort of noticed anything I start staring at for a long period of time, my camera soon follows that. So I guess maybe that's how it all started photographing how we are in the landscape. And not always in, well, pretty much mostly, I have to say, not necessarily in a negative way, right? I'm not photographing, you know, toxic waste dumps or, you know, these are things that we should care about and we should understand what we're doing. But there are a lot of people who are doing that really well, who are making pictures about that really well. I instead want to show, you know, more how, how we can be good to the earth too and be part of it. I guess that's my hope anyway for my work. All reminds me of your your book, The Meadow, a book from 2015 um, that is now darn near impossible to find. Meadows are a particular New England thing. They are part of how, they're very closely related to how New Englanders moved out of Boston, moved up river valleys, moved westward, moved north. When you started photographing meadows, were you motivated and interested in that history and that past and the preservation campaigns that have sprung up in the last few decades around that past? Or was it uh, just a more simple personal engagement? 
Yeah, it began as a much more personal engagement. I've loved the New England landscape. That's been since I moved to the Boston area in the early 80s. So I love the New England landscape. I spent a lot of time up in the White Mountains photographing, and I just think it's exquisitely beautiful around New England. I've always loved meadows, and and they are disappearing because it's easier to put a house development in a meadow than, than to have to clear the forest. So the meadows are disappearing. Meadows are a, um, they're hum- they need human intervention in order to stay a meadow, right? It's, it's mowed or it's kept clear. And it's, so, so I've always loved the New England landscape and all the, the meadows dotted throughout the landscape. But, but this one started much more personally because my friend owns the property. And so I st- would visit her and we would do walks together or we'd just go over for dinner and we'd sit out and have this beautiful view onto the meadow. So it wasn't long before I started photographing that because I was just there a lot and I said, let me just photograph that. And then one year became the next, all of a sudden, it's 20 years and I've been photographing this one place for 20 years over and over through the seasons. And, and then we started, because I'm always so interested in science and natural history. So we started, um, I invited a writer, my writer friend Margot Kelly but also work on this with me so she started walking the meadow with me and then you know in her own right doing her own explorations and writing and then we but together we brought in scientists to sort of walk the land with us to give us more knowledge from their perspective right something beyond what I see on the surface I wanted to know about the fireflies I was photographing we wanted to know what kind of answer here so expanded into a broader thing than my visits with the camera so anyway, yeah, it started, sim- it started simply with my friend, and then it grew into this whole exploration and, um, over, over uh, almost two decades. In 2005, you published a book called Trees, National Champions. I'm a bit of a tree guy, as listeners may know. Your book started with a list kept by the nonprofit American Forests of the largest known trees of more than 700 species in the United States. So, of course, trees have been an art since at least early Christian painting, often as metaphors for life, for the long life and goodness and charity of the Virgin Mary or, or Jesus and his enduring goodness and so on and so forth. Uh, were you interested in engaging with that art history? Was secularizing and Americanizing the tree and art of interest? How, how broad was the project? Again, I probably started out more simply and just that I love trees. So I thought, let's start photographing this list once I learned about this list. But but I'm also really interested in art history and look back to paintings of trees over time. So that's definitely an influence in in me. I probably don't think it was so conscious as saying, oh, trees are really in art history for a long time. Let's photograph them. It started more from I just love trees. So I, I learned about this list in the early 90s. And I thought, that that um, seemed to be something I could dig my teeth into. So because it's self-funded, I just do, whenever I'm traveling somewhere, I seek out and photograph that. So this has also been going on since, well, now is that a couple decades also. And what it has become now is this cross-section of the American landscape, right? I mean, I, I have the, there's a green ash at the crossroads in Michigan. I have a picture of the western red cedar in the middle of a clear cut in Washington state. Not every tree is a giant tree, right? So I also have a photograph of something called a dwarf chinkapin oak. And, you know, it's probably just barely my height. And, you know, it's, but it's the, it's the largest of that 
species in the country. So that's in a ranch land in Kansas. So, but what's wonderful about this now, having done it so long, is it just where it takes me in the country. The people I meet, they're incredibly people who know about trees are just really fanatical and love trees. So they're just amazing to be with, and they're all so excited about the trees. They love taking me out to show it to me. So it's really been every tree is an adventure to get to and to find. I mean, I don't find them. I go and I'm showed where the trees are. So it's just, yeah, it's just gotten so much bigger than just about the tree for me. It's the stories of these people and getting to the tree and started with just loving trees. Yeah, I'm sure it does for lots of artists, but of course trees and art of trees have been, you know, really important in, in American history and in terms of how we get to things like the conservation idea and the Yosemite idea. No, right. And you know, there's a painting I love by John Constable of, of an elm tree. And the elm, as you might know, maybe, well, people don't know, the elm, American elm has basically died out in this country. And actually, I think, I mean, England also had brought in a lot of American elm to their landscape. I think those are all disappearing over there, too. I could be wrong about that. But anyway, you know, there aren't very many American elms, but there is a, the, this list kept by the American forest does have an American elm on it. And I have photographed in these 20, 25 years, I think I've photographed three of them now because the first one I photographed was this beautiful American elm tree in Kansas and it was vandalized. So that slowly died. And I have been, I revisited that over the past years and um, have slowly watched it. And now it's really gone and it's a charred stump now. And then, and then the champion was in Ohio for a while. So I photographed that. And now the current champion is, oh, I think Louise. Louisiana. Generally, what I think what I was trying to say, and I got off track there, was um, just my nod to John Constable with the American Elm, sort of keeping, you know, sort of a nod to him for to try and photograph these American Elms that are left in this country. I wouldn't be me if I didn't ask you about view of the Oxbow from Dry Knob from New England Trail, a 2012 picture. It's part of a series of pictures you made from along the 215 mile New England Scenic Trail. And of course, the oxbow is a pretty darn famous thing, foundational thing in American art. Everyone from John Kensett to Wayne Tebow to Stephen Hannock and plenty of others have riffed on it. Why did you decide to do an oxbow? So, because I was asked by the National Park Service to photograph along their trail. So I knew that, that there was history, there was art history on the trail, and there's some art history along the trail that's more than the oxbow. When Cole did that painting, this trail didn't exist, but he did it from the top of Mount Holyoke. So I wanted to nod to his history. I wanted to acknowledge that art history, but I didn't need to do a rephotographic survey or I didn't need to stand in his footprints, right? But there was this other view that's actually along the trail that you could just see down into that. So I knew that that was a spot where I wanted to make this series as tribute to that painting. But I first learned of that painting not... In, as art history, but it was shown to me as a, a you know small letter O, small letter oxbow, because it's a geological feature, and I was very interested in geology when I was in high school. So that's when someone first showed me that painting was because it was an example of an oxbow. So I just I knew I wanted to make something acknowledge that history. I'm not an art historian, and I don't really study it, but I, I do love looking at paintings and thinking of that era of art history, the Hudson River School. Etc. So. You know, one of the things about the pictures you made from the trail and the way they engage that mid-19th century American painting is that so much of that painting is the first American 
visual art of man's impact on the land. And it looks at it questioningly. It looks at it hesitatingly. It wants people to see what 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 they've what what Americans have done and to to consider it. You've talked before about how when you make landscapes, but especially those pictures from the New England Trail, that you're also engaging with with how we've done things to the land. How much do you, I mean, do you think of your pictures as updating our history in the place, or do you think of your pictures as updating the artworks? How much are you getting at the art, and how much are you getting at us? Boy, I don't know that it's so much about updating the artwork, because I think that's, yeah, I don't know, that artwork I think can stand as it's, you know, in its amazing self. But I guess I do just want to look at how, well, specifically the trail, I like to look at how we move through the landscape, and I love standing up at these vistas. Well, the trail, you know, our culture uses a trail, you know, to get from point A to point B, right? So so you get up to point A and you get to look out onto this beautiful landscape. And I'm interested in that, sort of what's down below. And I look at the, the farm fields, the meadows, the, the civilization down there. And then I guess you can stand back from that and say, what does that mean? I, I don't know that I want to make a judgment on it, but just, you know, how is it that we have constructed our landscape how can we do that better maybe it's a time maybe it's a way for us to sort of then use these pictures as a way to think about that well you know when i think of when i think of pictures about how we are impacting the earth now i think of the the enormous and and indeed wonderful and impactful pictures of somebody like an edward bertinsky but your pictures from the new england trail show the same thing on a much more human the lives we live ourselves here and now level that for me is important. I mean, it's easy to hate a copper mine a long way away and, and to think of that as, as an impact of man. But I think it's harder for all of us to think of the impacts from the hills of New England and to think of those in the same way. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think the Edward Patinsky images are really needed and necessary and important for us to see all the stuff that happens because of the way we live our lives. And just because it's somewhere else doesn't mean we shouldn't be aware and doing everything we can to sort of take care. But I do we are in our own, yeah, in our own backyards or in our own places. And how can, can we be a little more gentler on things? And how do we live in this space? So I think that's an important part of when I make pictures. I mean, the Oxbow, back to the Oxbow images, so part of what I was interested in that is because down there in that Oxbow area, I don't know, what is it, 150 years after Cole painted it, or maybe close to 200 years after Cole, you know, um, he foresaw, right, this progress of civilization across the landscape. And in fact, now, so I was interested in showing, well, here is what, what is here now, and it's a marina down in that Oxbow. And so I wanted to, you know, that's part of that for me. That's a, That's the marina down there. That's what's transpired that's what's happened after Cole predicted this or foresaw it or and so then I did this series I wanted to show this oxbow over a variety of, of seasons and times so I have this night picture where the marina's lights are just glowing I mean it's kind of it's sort of ominous in a way and then there's other that are just so anyway I think the whole series shows a sort of a range of those kinds of thinking about our landscapes I love it it's really it's it's great and important Barbara Bosworth thanks so much Oh, you're welcome, Tyler. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.